Welcome to the SSPX Podcast, delivering sermons, lectures, and the spoken word from across the English-speaking world. On this episode of Questions with Father, we're speaking with Father Robinson about animals. Why is it that they have a different soul than we do, and how do we explain that to non-believers? Also, prayer. Why is it important? And also, talking with non-believers, how do we explain the good things that prayer does? Don't good things happen without prayer? We'll answer this and talk a little bit more about some other topics on this week's Questions with Father. This was recorded in the middle of June of this past month. We are hoping to increase both the guests and the frequency of our podcasts. We would appreciate your support. This is, of course, free to listen to, and it will remain free to listen to. But if you can support this apostolate, we would always appreciate it. Please feel free to go to sspx.gifts, find Angelus Press, and at checkout, leave a note for SSPX Podcast. Your support will allow us to buy much-needed equipment and increase the number of episodes that are available on the website. And of course, if you would like to participate, you're welcome to call in and leave a voicemail, 724-252-8426 at any time, or you can send an email to info at sspx.org or send us a message on our Facebook page, and it might be added to an upcoming podcast. Now, here's my interview with Father Robinson. Hello, Father. How are you? I'm well, Andrew. Very good. You've got uh, you got a, a couple week break at the seminary down in uh, down in Goulburn, Australia, right now. Is that right? That's correct. We just started a, a two week break, uh, what they call a holiday down here, and uh, the seminarians have left the the building. That, and we're just I'm just here with uh, with the brothers and a few other priests. Um, so we have uh, two weeks of, of freedom stretching before us. So we're, <laughs> we're all very much uh, looking forward to that. As a, as a seminary professor, I, I bet you have the same feeling that a lot of uh, you know elementary and high school teachers do for for summer break. It's you know don't really know who enjoys the break more, the students or the teachers. And that's exactly right. Well, I uh, certainly noticed the seminarians were extremely happy. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the the day before they were getting ready to leave. So um, I, I think they're definitely going to enjoy it. Oh, that's good. That's great. Well, Father, we have a we have a couple questions that I'd like to chat with you about this week. Uh, again, if you have a question that you'd like to ask Father, you can uh, call in on our new phone number, leave a voicemail, or you can send a message in to info at sspx.org. But uh, Father, let, let's dive right in. And this first question is on the subject of prayer. The questioner asks, how can we respond to a naturalist or atheist on the subject of the necessity of prayer when they say, I've been through hardships and had wonderful things happen without ever asking somebody for them? How do we answer that, Father? Well, I think um, one thing we should try to do up front is try to get the atheist out of their materialist perspective. Sort of behind this question is this perception that we pray to God solely in order to get stuff from him. You know, if we're in, in a difficult situation, if we're going through trials, well, then that's the time to pray to God. Um, and the first thing I think we have to make him understand is that we don't primarily pray to God to to get stuff or it's just like, oh, I'm having a difficult time. So, well, maybe I should pray to a higher power. Um, that's right. not the way we work as Catholics. The primary reason why we pray to God is that is that he's he's our father. You know, he, he created us. Uh, he's given us everything that, that we have. Um, and he is eminently worthy of, of our respect uh, and, and of our homage and, and adoration. So that's why we, we go to Mass. That's the primary reason why we, we go to Mass, uh, why, why we pray, uh, is, is that we owe it to Him 
just because of his own excellence. Right, and and that that is the one the, one of the ends of prayer is is adoration, and that's something that that an atheist is is completely missing, right? Yes, not only uh, adoration, uh, we pay homage to God, but also thanksgiving. We we give thanks to Him for His many blessings, and also reparation, um, which wherein we we try to make up for our offenses against Him. So you got three those three. Uh, purposes of prayer concern the rights of God. And then it's only the fourth purpose of, of prayer that you find in the catechism, which is that of petition that, that really the atheist is seeing, that, that you pray to God um, in order to get something. And that's really was the, the concepts that the pagans had about the higher powers. Um, there's this famous it's expressed in a famous Latin formula, um, do ut des, you know, I give something that in order that you might give me something. It's a sort of contract with the gods. Uh, I offer the sacrifice, I, I pay homage to you, and then you give me some sort of material advantage, or I, I simply appease you and you leave me alone. <laughs> you, don't, you don't sort of send down some thunderbolts or what have you. Uh, in order to make my life miserable, and uh, I understand that if I if I don't make these appeasements, then I'm likely to get in trouble with the gods. And I don't want to get into trouble with the gods because that would just you know they're they're more powerful. They have more power than I do, and so that's the reason why I do the sacrifice. Well, it's a totally different mentality from the Catholic mentality, wherein we actually love God. He's eminently lovable, and we are, are very conscious of the fact that we owe Him everything, and we have this this relationship with Him. To where we're, we're very careful to to seek to please him because he's been so good to us. And and I guess you could almost say, and I'm not trying to be an, an apologist for the atheists here, but you could almost uh, understand their confusion in thinking that prayer is only for getting stuff, because in our culture nowadays, that's that's about the only time you do see prayer. Whether in popular culture, like in movies or something, you know, someone's praying when they're having a really rough time. That's that's about the only time you see prayer. You don't see the other ends of prayer uh, manifested in any sort of cultural way that an atheist would be able to pick up on that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just part and parcel of the consumer society that we live in is society of always being solicited to give your will to something only on the basis of some advantage that will accrue to you and not on the basis of some virtue to be practiced. You know, I mean, the modern man, if you will, is, is always looking at things with the question, what am I going to get out of this? You know, what, what's in right. it for me? Right. So, so that is, those are some things that are missing in the atheist conception of prayer. Uh, or the the naturalist, the questioner said, but what about, how would you answer that specifically, that objection about, well, good things happen regardless of of whether whether or not I pray? I think there's something fundamentally flawed in in that perspective as as well. Um, The fact that someone goes through hardships and yet some good comes out of it um, is is kind of like implying that the, the, the person has been able to identify all the reasons for which the good things happen, and definitely God was not involved. How does the atheist know that God was not involved in the good things happening? Um, like we we don't even know all the causes for the weather. I mean, can an atheist point out to me all the causes uh, for which the the weather patterns happen, and, and therefore say that, that God's not involved at all in them? Uh, of course, he can't. I mean, it's it's just too complicated. Well, to say God is not involved in good things that happen is is to assume a knowledge that he doesn't have. It's like saying, I've been eating a certain type of food, 
and I've been nourished a lot without eating bread, so so bread must not be nourishing. Um, okay. So I've been I've been living my life, and I've been doing certain things, and good things have happened. So God must not be involved. I haven't been praying to Him. Well, you just don't know that uh, God has not been involved. I mean, just because I eat rice crackers doesn't mean that they alone can nourish. And we, we know in Scripture tells us that God is so good that he's even good to people who uh, do not serve him, that um, God causes the sun to, to shine down not just on people who are good, but also on on the wicked. So I think there's a false assumption there on the part of the atheists. In other words, um, they're sort of assuming that that God is not involved in in good things happening. When in fact, God is sustaining them in existence, and God is ultimately behind everything that happens to them in in some way. Right. Very interesting. Well, when we hear these answers, definitely a cause to to pray for those who have not heard the word of God or, or not opened up their soul to be able to receive the truth and, and, and the message. But that is a very interesting um, answer to that, Father. Thank you. Yeah. And, and I think you're exactly right. It's we, we need to pray for these people. And and above all, try to I think the first step is to get them out of their materialistic perspective and, and help them see that, yeah, there's there's a bit more to life than just getting stuff or, or having some sort of material advantage. And that's the only way to, to get them to start considering uh, the possibility of a higher power. Absolutely. Well, our, our second question this week, Father, is about animals and, and souls and consciousness. Uh, the questioner said, how do we know that animals are not conscious? Dogs seem loyal, he says. How do we define to someone who doesn't have the faith, again, an atheist or a naturalist, the difference between animal and human souls? You know, I, I think this is an interesting question because of the particular environment we live in today uh, where we're, we're sort of saturated with these Darwinian ideas of evolution. And one, one of the ideas, one of the necessary premises of Darwinism is that there are no uh, big breaks between various animals and human beings, that, that effectively um, humans are just highly developed animals. And, and things like um, gorillas or chimpanzees are, are just less developed animals. But we're basically and fundamentally the same thing. So all that you, you have to do is, is just sort of upgrade a chimpanzee and you've got a human being with, with intelligence. In, you know, in my book, um, The Realist Guide to Religion and Science, I, I start off a, a chapter on – my chapter on evolution is speaking about – this movie that I saw part of when I was on a boat in the Philippines, I was going between one island and another. It was called The Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And, and effectively in the movie, um, what they do is develop this chemical that is, in, is able to give intelligence to a, an ape. And the whole premise behind that is that really the only difference between humans and animals is a, a difference of our material configuration. That's just completely and, and utterly false, and that, that's the reason why people today are um, so gone so overboard with, with animal rights, um, advocating for animal rights and trying to give animals basically the same rights that we give to human beings where um, they have rights as a person and, and they can go to a court of law and people can be charged basically <laughs> um, on behalf of the animal. Um, right. You know, the, the, the animal can effectively stand in court. But to uh, not to not to complicate matters, but we you know, I was taught in catechism growing up that that animals do have a have a soul. Uh, it's just not to to the higher level that that uh, that humans do. Yes. 
I think there's two things we can we can do to clarify the differences between animals and humans. One is on the side of philosophy and the other is on the side of science. On the side of philosophy, we, we carefully identify and distinguish the, the various powers that, that humans have versus the powers that, that animals have. And, you know, if we study psychology, what's known as Thomistic psychology, it's not psychology as we know it today, but, but uh, psychology is just a study of souls, the types of souls, the type of soul that, that a, a plant has, uh, using soul as, in, the, in the way that Aristotle would understand it as a principle of self-movement. So plants have a plant soul, uh, a vegetative soul, animals have a sentient soul, and humans have an intellectual soul. And, and the, the higher soul include the powers of, of the lower souls. So humans have both that sentient soul of the animal and the vegetative soul of, of the plant, but it's, they're all subsumed under the intellectual soul. So I think to distinguish between animals and, and humans, we, we have to carefully understand what are the powers of the sentient soul, uh, which animals have, um, and, and what are the powers of the intellectual soul, which, which only humans have. And, and when we do that, we can clearly see how the behavior of humans manifests uh, a fundamentally different power, um, this, this intellectual power that, that in the animals do not uh, manifest that, that sentient power. So to understand that the kind of soul that an animal has, you say it's a sentient soul, the easiest way to define that and to understand that is to go to the root of the, of the word sentient. Does that just mean uh, they're able to sense something or to, uh, I guess, not understand, but to uh, see something or hear something or have some kind of sense knowledge uh, and that just reflects in their brain as, as a almost a, a reflection of what they're seeing? Yes, yes, exactly. And, and they have the, the sense faculties, so the five external senses, and also the, the internal senses. So, uh, you know, St. Thomas and, and, and the scholastics, Thomistic philosophers would speak of four internal senses, imagination, memory, um, instinct, and, and something called a common sense. Um, it doesn't mean common sense in what we normally understand it, but it's just a sort of a, uh, the ability to gather all that data from the five senses and, and focus it and, and compile it in, in one common point and, and assimilate it. So the animals have those things. That's, that's very obvious that they have these powers. And in that sense, we can speak of them as having consciousness. They are aware of their environment around them. And they react to that environment on the basis of these senses. So when when uh, a sheep sees a, a wolf, um, it is able to identify at the sense level danger and, and have this emotion of fear and then run uh, away from, from that danger. All this is happening at the sense level. There, there, is, there are the passions. There's a passion of, of fear. There is the stimulation of the brain that, that you've mentioned to where the optical nerve fires the neurons in the brain. And there's, there's certain patterns in the brain that, that are able to produce this, this certain uh, response, this instinctive response of, of running away in, in order to survive. So, so go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to ask, Father. I, w one of the words that I was struggling to not use—it's—it's it's like some of those board games where you're—you you have to give a clue without using a word. I was—I was struggling with this earlier. Uh, one of the words I wanted to use was uh, understanding, uh, because 
like you said, they, they take in the different senses and they can kind of put them all together in their brain, I wanted to say, and then they understand what's going on. But I guess it's not so much understanding as it is almost a reaction. They, they have almost a, we could say a reactionary kind of brain. Like, you know, I see fire, fire hot, run type of thing. Is that more accurate than saying understanding? Right. Right. I, I think we, we have to carefully distinguish between conceptualization and sensation. That is that is the primary distinction. So okay. animals are not able to conceptualize. They're not able, able to, to form uh, universal concepts that apply to all instances of that concept. So they couldn't form an example. The sheep could not form a concept of a wolf um, and, and know – uh, sort of that that universal type of of wolfness, <laughs> but right. the sheep is able to uh, identify particular wolves uh, to to say that that okay we've got an instance here of of this dangerous. Um, I don't know, carnivorous thing. Um, right. You know, it's, it's hard for us to talk about this because I, I can only talk to you about it using concepts. So it's, it's, it's kind of a strange situation because we as wow. humans, we're going to use concepts in order to explain how they live life without concepts. Um, right. So that's what, what makes it difficult. But there's a book that, that's uh, besides my, my own book, of course, uh, <laughs> that's, that's very good on this subject. It's called The New Biology by Robert Algros and George Stansu. Um, but they have a chapter on the differences between animals and humans. And they, they point out, they say animals deal with phenomenal appearances, not with what things are. They do not distinguish between sense qualities of a thing and what the thing is. Consequently, they are incapable of understanding causes. They go on to illustrate this with all kinds of, of scientific examples. So scientists have gone and they've tried to carefully study the reactions of animals in, in order to get an impression of how animals see the world. And what they find is that animals are sort of locked into their own perceptual world. I mean, if, if, if we only had sensation, then we would only be able to know what our senses would provide us. We wouldn't be able to form concepts from that and sort of expand our, our knowledge beyond what our senses uh, bring to us. And so this is what the scientists have found out, that the animals each have their senses tuned precisely to what will help them survive. Just to give a few examples, there's, there's a certain bird called a jackdaw, um, and it eats grasshoppers. Um, but, so its, its senses are, are tuned to perceiving grasshoppers, but interestingly, they, they cannot see grasshoppers that are not moving. In other words, they just do not recognize the shape of a motionless grasshopper in the grass. They cannot identify it, but when it starts to move, then they're able to identify it as a grasshopper. Whereas a human being looking at a grasshopper would be able to identify it in a painting, would be able to identify it in a book or um, a picture of one or one that's moving, one that's not moving, because we can form a universal concept of a, of a grasshopper. And it's similar for a frog. You know, frog, its uh, optical nerve fires when when it has some prey that's that's moving in front of it. Uh, but after a few seconds, if the if the animal stops, the the optical nerve stops firing, 
And what happens is it's is almost like that animal disappears from their whole view of sight. They, they stop seeing it when it stops moving. Um, and luckily for the frog, the, all, all their prey moves uh, because if, if they were surrounded by food uh, that was not moving, they simply would not eat because they would not see the, these, these animals moving and they wouldn't even perceive them. So I, I guess um, if I could push back a little bit, Father, in, in a sense, and I have two sort of examples and, and maybe we treat them individually or maybe, the, maybe it's the same concept behind both examples – and that is, we've heard stories about, uh, you know, chimpanzees, especially, uh, they have learned, and again, I, I don't know if learned is the right word, but they've learned sign language for, you know, various things like banana. Uh, you know, the other example I would say is, um, you know, you hear stories all the time about loyal dogs uh, waiting outside a house for an owner to come back, or uh, even a, a soldier that is that is killed at war. Uh, sometimes you'll see pictures of that dog at, at the grave site. How, how would you square mm-hmm. that with them not being able to form concepts, you know, both the monkey with the banana sign language and the, and the dog being very loyal? Well, there, there's a few things. That what we have to understand is, is that all of these things can be traced back causally to the ability to identify particular things. So um, all these things rest at the particular level of sensation. So the dog, for instance, is able to form um, particular impressions in his imagination and memory of of his owner and particular impressions of the sound of his name for instance and Ah. associate that name with uh, particular other sensations so there's this ability that animals have to associate one sensation one particular sensation with another particular sensation without ever rising to the the level of a universal concept Um, and we all know that when you train a dog what you do is you give it a, a doggy biscuit for doing something good. And that precisely associates a sensation, one sensation with a certain behavior. And so if you instruct this dog that this sensation of getting a doggy biscuit will come to him, if he sits, when he hears another sensation, the word sit, then he will form that habit. But but the dog will never be able to understand or grasp the the concept of, of sitting or or why he's sitting why you want him to sit or, or any of those things um, but he's just able to uh, associate a, a sound with a certain sensory input you know the, the fact of him getting a, a biscuit in, in my book I mentioned an interesting case of of a horse who is his name was clever Hans and he was uh, supposedly a horse mathematician. <laughs> His owner would take him around and do math problems with him. Okay, so he he would invite people in the crowd to come up and and put an addition problem on a blackboard, and then ask Clever Hans what what is the the sum of these two numbers. And Clever Hans would tap his hoof a certain huh. number of times and, until he got to the right answer. Then he would stop. And, and people were amazed. They were just like, this is unbelievable, a horse who knows mathematics. But there was one, one man who was particularly skeptical. He's like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about this. Right. Um, so, so he started to observe Clever Hans very carefully. And what he figured out finally was that when, when Clever Hans could not see the person who had asked the question, uh, then he could not get the answer right. 
it was only when he could see the 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 human's face huh. that he would know when to stop tapping his hoof. And so what was happening was that people were actually giving cues to the horse without even realizing it. So the, 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 the horse was clever enough to pick up on the facial movements of the, the person to know when he was at the right answer uh, and, wow. and not. So, so it, it was just another instance of an animal um, fine-tuning his, his sense perception but it was not a question of, of conceptualization. Wow. So, so the, the horse and, and I guess by extension, you know, the, the, the monkey doing the sign language for banana, this, the same sort of thing, they're able to, they're able to put together some, some concepts, so to speak, uh, but they can't make it a, a broader concept. Uh, you know, the, there's that famous experiment about, uh, I think it's called Pavlov's dog, where they played a tune or a tone, uh, like a bell or something. And the dog got to know that this was, like you said, doggy biscuit time. So every time he heard the tone, he would go to the treat door. But I guess if, if the dog, and I'm, I'm expanding on that a bit, I guess if the dog heard a different kind of a tone, he would probably do nothing because he doesn't understand that, well, any musical tone means do doggy biscuit. He can only understand tone. This one means this. He, he can't extrapolate it into a broader concept. Yes, yes. And I mean, technically speaking, we, we wouldn't even call it a concept. We would, we would call it an image. Um, okay. like we would even call a, a sound a, a certain image, a sense impression. Um, so he's, the, the, the animals are able to associate particular sense impressions and, and by means of that association respond in certain ways. But he doesn't know the reason. Um, sure. I mean, we as humans, we, we, when we heard the bell, we, we would understand the bell doesn't cause food to appear. Uh, uh, there right. must be some other agent involved in the food appearing, whereas the dog would just he, – he wouldn't, he wouldn't know that, that that is the case. What a concept is able to do is, is it's able to uh, rise above all particular instances and give a universal rule or a universal type that we then as humans can apply in any situation. Um, you know, I can, I can, human beings can, can just see one instance or, or understand, grasp one instance of a thing. And no matter where they go in the world or whatever situation they, they are in, they can apply that particular uh, rule or principle to the, the instance. Um, even if, if the sensory things are, are drastically changed. Th that's the ability we have, whereas the, the, the animals can only rely on the sensory impressions. They can't go above that. And that's why the animals often make, you know, what for us are, are really dumb mistakes. Um, they, they, they just uh, do not, they, they do some things that seem for us to be completely and utterly r irrational. Um, I, again, this, this book, The New Biology, it speaks about uh, turkeys and their defense of their chicks and their, and their nests. And what, what the scientists discovered was that the, the turkey hen um, is only able to uh, identify her chicks by their cheeps. So the particular sound that they make um, indicates to, to the, the turkey hen that, that that's her chicks. And if, therefore, if the turkey is deaf and she sees the chicks in her nest, because she can't hear them, she thinks that they are predators and oh. she kills them. Oh. Yeah. So deaf turkey hens kill their chicks. 
Um, whereas if you if you have a stuffed weasel and you you put like a, a certain uh, speaker inside a stuffed weasel that makes sounds like the tur- turkey chicks and you put that in in the, in the nest of a of a turkey hen that can hear, well the turkey hen will do nothing. So you'll feel like this is this is one of her own chicks. You know, wow. <laughs> you know I, I remember an instance here at the seminary where we had a very uh, young young heifer give give birth to to a calf. And the heifer didn't know it was her calf. And, and we were like, what do we do in order to help this heifer understand that this is that this is actually her child so that the, 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 the heifer would, would start nursing uh, her own calf? Um, and one of the local farmers suggested that we, we confine them and we put them in, in close proximity to one another uh, for an extended period of time. And then finally, the heifer figures it out. And, and I mean, for us, it's just like unimaginable. Like, how can you not identify your your own young? Um, it's precisely because of that fact that they're limited to sense perception, and and that they're limited to only certain types of sense perception. Even in that range of sense perception, they can. There's only certain clues that they are able to use. They're not able to use all sensory clues, but only certain sensory clues to to know what to do. That's fascinating. So to to expand on that a, a bit, so we've we've identified that the they do have a soul, but it is not the same as a human soul. And so, I mean, th- that's why we are allowed to kill an animal because their their soul is not supernatural to the extent that they have eternal life. When animal dies, it just dies, and the soul dies as well. Uh, it's not like that cheesy '90s movie, "All Dogs Go to Heaven," right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, we, we can see in this uh, the beautiful order that, that God has created. He's He's provided us these animals that that are below us, but they're they're the highest of the uh, mere animals. And look at all the the good that they provide us. Uh, certainly. Um, a major part of our diet is 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 food that comes from animals, but also they they make uh, fantastic companions. Uh, they are of great assistance to us. If you think of the dog on on the the fireman's truck, or the dog at the airport who's sniffing out the drugs, or, right. or the Saint Bernard dog, or the sheep dog, um, you know that's why the dog is is called man's best friend. <laughs> um, right. God has certainly given to us these animals as a beautiful. A manifestation of his goodness towards us and sort of in, enhance our own life through these animals. But but we, we can't humanize them. I mean, it's just the, the fact is that they're merely animals. And in the end, it's very clear that because they are only sentient and they're not intellectual, um, that they just don't really care about um, intellectual things. Apes are just not interested in learning words. I mean, you can you can teach them a certain number of words, and the the only thing they're really interested in is is getting the banana. Um, they're not interested in learning words for for words' sake. Whereas if you take a young child um, and you start to teach them words, once they they sort of grasp the first few words, then they become fascinated with the whole process of learning. Sure. Because they're human beings and they're they're made to learn concepts, and that's a fulfillment of their of their very soul. They get into it and, and they want to learn as much as, as possible. Whereas animals, because they, they can't grasp these words, they can't grasp what they mean. Right. There's there's no what what I was thinking earlier when you were saying that that a, a human has that desire to learn more and more words. There, that's an intellectual uh, curiosity that that an animal just doesn't have. Like you said, everything for them is based on reward or punishment? Yeah, you just can't motivate 
um, an animal, but on the basis of, of sensation. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, Father, thank you. That's, uh, you know, like we talked about in, in the last podcast, hearing more of these scientific and, and natural things um, about the world that, that God has created, far from diminishing our faith, uh, it, it makes us appreciate the creation that, that God has given us all the more. Absolutely. Yes, we have a very good God. Well, Father, thank you again for your time. We greatly appreciate it and uh, enjoy your time off without the seminarians. I, I won't tell them that you like the seminary better without them. <laughs> thank you very much, Andrew. And thanks for having me on. Thank you for supporting the SSPX podcast by listening, by rating, and by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. If you would like to donate to this apostolate, please feel free to go to sspx.gifts, find Angelus Press, and at checkout, leave a note for SSPX Podcast. Your support is always greatly appreciated. If you would like to discover more about the Society of St. Pius X, please visit the United States District webpage at sspx.org. And if you would like to find out more about Angelus Press, which produces and hosts this podcast, please visit angeluspress.org. Thank you for your support, and God bless you. Thank you.